There's Chippy, alive, but stunned, covered in soot. And so the owner grabs Chippy and runs to the bathroom, turns on the faucet to the cold water, the one burns, and just sticks Chippy under the water, right? And she realizes now that Chippy is very cold, shivering, and is stunned by this. So she did what any compassionate owner would do. She got the blow dryer and just blasted Chippy with that hot air. Just Chippy never saw it coming. Sucked in, washed up, and blown up. And a, a friend asked Chippy a few weeks, oh, not Chippy, but asked the maybe it is a um, asked the owner, hey, you know, how, how is Chippy doing after that? And the owner just says, well, he doesn't sing anymore. He just kind of sits there. Well, that's understandable, right? Because being sucked in, washed up, and blown over is enough to steal the song out of even the stoutest of hearts. But that kind of explains how we feel sometimes, sucked in, washed up, and blown over. It explains the, the inevitability of trials and suffering and the powerlessness that we feel when they come. And that's kind of what James has to talk about here. And um, another thing before I, I read the uh, very many verses that Chad has left me, um, so my wife, and I guess Brent too, I guess it's a duck thing, um, they had this thing about movie trailers where um, they don't like them because what they've become now is that they tell you everything, right? The whole movie is just um, told, I mean, you'll start like, you know, in a world <laughs> where lovers are everywhere. Right, and then whatever. It shows two people that are in love. Bye, I'm Chad, and I'm here. Whatever, and it just sees them. You see all the romantic scenes, you're like, yeah, they're in love. Like, I totally get this, right? And then, of course, then tragedy occurs. Right? And you're like, oh no. And you're not like, I wonder what happens. Because you know, oh yeah, her dad died, he got shot. Like, this is bad, right? You know, it shows all the scenes of tragedy, it shows the action scene, like, ah, I'm getting to the chocolate, I'm going to Schwarzenegger, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? You're going to have that, it's gonna, you're going to see it all. And then, will they make it? Will they get their happy ending? And you're not like wondering. Right? Like, I saw them get married. I even saw the credits run at the end. Right? You you see the whole movie, and you're not left at the end wondering like, oh, I wonder what that's about. You know? Or it looks good, but I'm I'm not sure. You know, the podcast was. They just they tell you everything. They become not like sneak peeks. They become spark notes of movies. If you want like to watch a movie very quickly, just go watch movies. And, and, and I can see, it doesn't bother me very much, but I can see that that's annoying when it comes to movies. But it's not, it's not annoying when it comes to something like moral jokes or truth. Um, and so we're fortunate, I think, because in James here, we 
we have an example of this sort of clarity. We're not left wondering, like, oh, I kind of know, I don't know. It'll be good to find out when I die what I was actually supposed to do, right? That's, that's not good, but it, whatever. Um, I actually went to the internet because not all apparently authoritative moral dictums are very clear. So here's some, uh, some moral uh, proverbs that are out there. And I really want you to focus on these and take them home and apply them to your life. Here's an English one, an older English one. It says, everything has a hand, and pudding has a Focus on that. Um, this is a, a Telugu one, it's like a Hindi language. Um, it says, every house has an urban fireplace. So, think about it. Uh, even a river will forgive three offenses. You gotta think, okay, so we're supposed to forgive, maybe like a river, because rivers, you know, they forgive at least three of them, <laughs> obviously. You know, and this is an Osmani one, it's like a Turkish one. It says, do not open the mouth of the sack. <laughs> Don't do it. Nothing good ever happens from opening the mouth of the sack. Right? Now I like this one. This is the Hebrew one. It says, every pumpkin is known by its stem. <laughs> I like that because it sounds super deep, you know. Like you want to think about it a lot, you're like, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know a pumpkin by its stem. So we're actually very fortunate when it comes to the text of James um, and even the Bible proper because it's very clear uh, in many ways about what we're supposed to do, the sort of moral instruction. Um, but it's also because of this clarity that we see just how radically different it is. And not like different in like, it's different, like really different, but different as in it, it radically aberrates from the world and what it, it calls you to do. It is different, wholly different than what the world desires for you and for your life. And so let's... Um, Let's jump into all of uh, James 1, 1 through 16, and I'll read it here. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish the work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person, person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will see the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived by your brothers and sisters. So, first Honestly, uh, when we look at this, if we go, um, I, uh, there's sort of a theme I, I want you to focus on. And uh, it's not the direct thesis of James, but it's definitely there. And it's this, it's that different moral objectives lead to different moral actions, which forms a different kind of person. So when we're focused on different objectives, not the objectives of the world, but the ones that God has for us, that's going to lead us to taking different kinds of actions, which will ultimately form us into different and better people. Um, and so we'll, we'll go and we'll dissect this and see if we can find uh, areas where uh, things are different. So starting with verse 1, let's bring to the bottom screen for you. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes. Nope. This is. Oh, no, I am. Yeah. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So this, I think, mean, seems honestly pretty normal. Uh, I guess greetings is a little alien to us in, like, the extraterrestrial sense, because we always think of the alien saying, like, Greetings, right? I mean, but all things considered, this seems pretty normal. In fact, if I were to uh, draw upon all of my seminary prowess, I would say that James is probably just saying hello. <laughs> seems pretty normal. Not too different. But then we get to verse 2. And it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay. That's, that's different. Consider it joy when you face trials. See the Greek here, this is gonna this is gonna screech in my dad's ears, because I learned Greek, Koine Greek, which is Biblical Greek in the modern dialect how I say it today, which is not how it's called it, really. <laughs> <laughs> I know it, and that's all that matters. <laughs> it says, Hassan Karanti Isasti which is Hassan, all, Karan, joy, Igisaste, considerate, Adelfo, which is plural brothers, and Mu, mine. So all joy, considerate brothers of mine. Or considerate all joy, my brothers. And the joy here, Karan, is literally what joy means. That's so different. I mean, let me try to give you an analogy to put it in perspective. Imagine that a, a vacuum salesman comes to your door. I don't know if this still happens, but I know it was a thing at one point where that they come to your door. And so they come to your door and they knock. And you open it, and this is what they say verbatim. Greetings. I have here the super sucker 9000. It breaks down often. It doesn't always turn on when you want it to, but that's good. 
because it will teach you patience. It'll teach you how to read those pointlessly obscure troubleshooting manuals. Right? You're not going to look at this guy and say, oh, that's so. I'll take two. Right? You're going to say, uh, uh, no, thank you, not interested. And you're going to close the door, and then you're going to think to yourself, that's, that's different. Right? That's certainly a different approach. So when James says, hey, greetings, brothers and sisters. Consider joy when you're put through the grinder. When you're going through those trials, when you're suffering, be happy about it. Consider it joy. That, that's the way. I, um, I think we can, we can always try to alter the perspective a bit. We can say, well, yeah, I can see if I were to be walking and I stubbed my toe. I'd be super mad about it, frustrated. But you know what? I, I can see the bright side because I'll be more careful in the future where I step, especially in that spot. So I can, I can see how I can get good things out of that. That's a little weak. I mean, you think about the context. You think about the apostles, all of whom suffered for their Christian faith. Almost all of whom were killed for their Christian faith. You think about uh, the, the um, Council of Nicaea. Um, Vance Havner, who was a popular evangelist once, said that out of the approximately 318 delegates who went to the Council of Nicaea, which was a church council, a very important one in the 4th century, only oh, fewer than 12 did not limp or have a missing limb or a missing eye. That didn't struggle or have some sort of physical problem because of what was done to them for their Christian faith. Or you think about um, Louis Zamperini. Um, there's a book called Unbroken in the movie by the same name, and I don't want to give too many spoilers, but basically he is on a plane, and this plane is during World War II, and this plane is known to be in Lemon, and it proved to be that way, because he's on a plane with 10 of his brothers at arms, his, his friends, and it goes down over the ocean. And uh, eight of them die on impact. Three of them are, are left alive to, to try to survive on this life raft with literally no food or water. They survive on rain and raw fish, raw albatross, which is gross, bird. Um, they fend off sharks. So for 47 days, they have nothing and are, are just in absolute abject suffering wanting to be saved and thank goodness they are by their enemy the Japanese name so instead of going from suffering to comfort they go from suffering to suffering they're left in these prison camps to be malnourished and beaten and tortured and it's in moments like that where James' words just, they squeak in our ears. They, they sound like nails on a chalkboard. Consider it joy. That's hard for someone in that situation to say, consider it joy.
But let's look at an important distinction being made here in James. That uh, word in James 1-2 that says, consider it, uh, in this context, it literally means think of. So James is saying, think, think of it this way. He's not saying, hey, feel this way. He's saying, think of it this way. Try to see the bright side. Because when, when we can see the bright side, when we can try to think of how this could be good, it can bring us hope. It can bring us peace even within that struggling. Because it's not always going to be something we can feel. That's why he says, I think of it this way. So he's, he's explained here the sort of moral objective. And that's to consider trials and tribulations as joy. Try to, try to focus on how struggling, how being sucked in, washed up, and blown over can, can bring you something good. And this is why. He explains why here in verse 3. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So he's not being masochistic and, and basically saying we derive joy from our pain, right? Pain feels good. He's, he's not saying that, the joy, that there's joy in the trials per se or in and of itself. He's saying that it's in the knowledge that trials are building us up. They're making us stronger. Struggle and trials strengthen us. And I have a really cool sort of analogy here. 20 years ago, in the mountains of Arizona, they built this thing called the Biosphere 2. And what it was, was it was this extremely vast enclosure where they fine-tuned everything for the perfect conditions for life to flourish. And so they planted, among many other things, trees. And what they found was that in these perfect conditions, these trees would grow rapidly. But something, something was happening. In this vast enclosure, fine-tuned with the perfect conditions, these trees still growing rapidly. Very They had underdeveloped root systems. They were very thin. In fact, some of them were so weak that they would just topple over from their own weight. And this was just mystifying scientists. How could trees not flourish in the perfect environment? And then they found out it's what botanists call stress work. By leaving out one thing in this perfect environment, the one thing that trees apparently really need, but it can bring disaster into the world. That's wind. See, wind builds up stress wood, this strong, fibrous wood that vastly improves the life of the tree. Because in the wild, trees have to endure the storms. They have to hold strong against the wind. And they are built up because of it. They're made strong, their roots 
go grow deep and they're strengthened at the core. That is the same for us. Struggles build us up. They strengthen our core. And that's vastly different than the world. See, the world is always looking for that perfect environment. And as Christians, we have to say no. We'll take the wind. We'll weather the storm. Because we'll be stronger for it. And uh, that's hard. It's not always easy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it plainly in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, one of my favorite books. When Christ calls a man, he bid him come and die. Jesus says it in this way, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The Christian life is permeated with struggle. James is illustrating just how in the Christian life, struggle is something that Christians go through, but it's actually something Christians also should expect. James made clear that the journey starts with a different outlook. Our objective is to consider our times of trial as joy it builds us up. We should take actions that make us strong, not actions that take us closer to that perfect environment where the wind no longer blows. That's uh, interesting because how James uses wind in verses 5-7 is a little bit different. In verses 5-7 it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, those who doubt... God and what he can give them are not like trees in the face of wind who stand strong and grow stronger root systems and grow to be just a stronger person overall. They're like the waves that are tossed about from the wind because they stand for nothing and therefore are moved by everything. And this is, this is just a very different outlook because James talked about how when we lack wisdom, we don't go and download a trivia app for $1.99 on our phones because it says it's going to increase our IQ by two to three standard deviations in two weeks. We don't go and get those self-help books. We ask God. See, but the world is proliferated with self-improvement. It's proliferated with self-help ideas and strategies. But Christians for centuries have always pushed forward the idea of God help. Because God knows we need it. Right? The whole Christian narrative focuses on the idea that we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. 
So we ask God. We don't, we don't just go out and say, I know a book. We involve God in a real way in our lives. Because we believe that God really impacts us. So, um, James in this epistle is demonstrating our, our is, is really focusing on how we demonstrate our faith by what we do. And it's very evident here because he wants us to know that we ought to demonstrate our asking God is partnered with the belief that he can do it. Um, and it, it reminds me of a very oft-stated story of the Christian farmers where there's two farmers and there's this horrible drought and their crops cannot possibly survive without rain. And so the farmers sit their knees and they pray and they say, God, give us rain in Jesus' name. You know? And so they pray and they say amen. And one of them gets up and goes to uh, his pantry, grabs potato chips, sits down on his couch and watches the reruns of Friends. That's not the original story, it's true. <laughs> um, but the other, the other farmer, he gets up and he goes outside and he goes to his crop and he prepares it for it. See, and then we're, it's, it's no wonder who trusted God in this story. The one who prayed without conviction and just went and then sat on his couch not expecting it to happen, or the one who prayed and then expected it, so did something about it. See, the one who prayed without conviction and went and sat down and watched reruns of Friends is what James called a double-minded person. In verse 8, he says, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And it's, it's sort of a tautology of tautologies when Trinity say the same thing. Uh, twice. And it's because a person who prays without belief that God can actually do it shouldn't expect anything to happen because they're already expecting nothing to happen. Right? When you, when you pray with doubt, you're pretty much saying, God, can you do this? I know you will. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so it's like, your actions expect it not to happen. So James says you shouldn't expect anything to happen primarily because that's exactly what you're doing. He's expecting nothing to happen to happen to pray. And it reminds me of a Costco story. A return story. Right? I have so many Costco return stories. This is just one out of the bag. But I was here to go. I was I was very like brand new at the time. I didn't act I wasn't very familiar with our return policy, which is uh, take everything no matter what. Um, but I was at the return desk, and this guy comes up to me, and this is kind of how he starts. He says, no, I know there's nothing to eat here. Okay. You know, uh, I have these in the pots. These shoes on the curb. Ten years old. Ten years old. Look like that they had been used to mow the lawn for all 10 years. Not just his lawn, but his neighbor's lawn. Everybody. And these shoes had, had, had seen their last leg, or foot, I guess is how you'd say that. It, so they, they were done. They'd seen, these were the 
Kirkman Signature Court Classics. Quality sugar. And uh, he said, I know there's nothing you can do, very old. And just looks at me. And I'm like, is this a question? Or, and uh, you know, so I got the picture. He's, oh, uh, this is a return. He wants to return them. He's just not saying it. And so at the time, I, I didn't really know. It seemed like a very peculiar use of our return policy. So he said, you know what, sir, I'm not sure if I can authorize this, but let me get a manager. So uh, I get my manager. And take in mind, our return policy is satisfaction guaranteed. Okay, so in some of my shoes, there's no time limit on that. And so uh, my manager comes over and he explains pretty much the same thing. I know there's nothing about it. I don't know why I brought it in, but it's falling apart, blah, blah, blah. And my manager just asked, well, are you satisfied? Sleep on an inner spring mattress or top of the phone. 
If he was rich, what am I? See, James sees with poignant clarity that wealth hinders the growth of Christianity. It is the great salvific distraction. And it's not because wealth is bad per se. I mean, the Bible never says that. The Bible said it's the love of money that is the root of evil. But when wealth is so integrated in our lives, we use it for everything and we have it. It becomes hard in many ways not to follow just the little we love. And, and unfortunately, this reality um, can be seen by how wealth correlates with the decline of Christianity. You look at demographics and you see that it's the wealthiest among us who find that they don't need God. Because how easy is, is it for them to finally say, you know what, I have everything I need. Who needs God? So James here says it's the poor who are in the high position. Because it is they who can see with better vision the need for God in this broken world. And, and James knows that wealth makes Christianity difficult. Certainly not impossible, but it makes it difficult. As he follows the verse, uh, with verses 10 to 11 saying, But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So honestly, this is a little bit of a uh, thorny issue. Commentators are divided on whether or not um, the rich believe, or the rich person here is a believer or an unbeliever. Um, if it refers to a rich unbeliever in the verse 10 where it says, but the rich should take pride in the humiliation since they will pass away like a wildfire. That would be pretty um, strong arm or sarcasm. Because it pretty much be saying, the rich should take pride in the fact that they're going to die without anything. The rich should take pride in the fact that they pretty much ruined the very of themselves. That's like pretty sinisterly sarcastic. But uh, if it's true, then when it says that they'll wither, and be destroyed, then that refers to the final judgment. But as much as that view has things going for it, I like to think that it's actually referring to the rich believer. Uh, as for many reasons, in, in chapter two, it uh, talks about there being rich people in the assembly of the church. In chapter four, it talks about uh, traveling with rich people. Um, but also, it seems to be talking about how the rich person, humiliation is that same, they should take pride in their lowly uh, state as a believer. Um, it seems like James is trying to get the point across that the rich person shouldn't take pride in their wealth or their status or their popularity, but rather who they are in Christ. Wealth does not put them on a higher rung than the poor believer because it refers to something that is fleeting. See, his, the wealthy person's mansion, his property holdings, his stock portfolio, all of that will mean nothing when you're dead. 
when you go to the grave. Someone once said that at the end of the game, the pawn and the king go back to the same box. And so most of us think that this idea of wealth applies to the Donald Trumps and the Bill Gates and those type of guys, which it certainly does. But by the world's standards, most of us qualify as rich. See, many of us own our homes. We certainly have a shelter, a place to live. We have gadgets and TVs, and we have cars, hopefully, a lot of times we have so many clothes that we can honestly go to our closet and be like, I don't know what to wear today. I got so many. <laughs> you know, but around the world, there are people who have shacks or no home. There are people who are living meal by meal. There are people who only have the clothes that are on their backs, and they certainly don't have any luxuries that we enjoy. So in many ways, it's us who need to apply verses 10 and 11 to ourselves. How can we take pride in our lowliness as Christians and not in our wealth or in our status or the things that we have or possess? Because that's what the world wants. I see things on TV all the time, you know, show all the celebrities out there. In many ways, it's disgusting because they're so pumped up with their own fame and glory and the things that they have and the houses that they build and the things that they buy. And it's just empty. It's emptiness. But so many people around the world are sucked into that and say, wow, I wish I was like that. James is calling us to be different. When we look at that, we don't say, wow, that's sad. It's just too bad. They don't see. We can take pride in our humiliation or our loneliness. We can take pride in the fact that our eyes are open to see that thing and see that in the world. We're not here to accumulate the world's junk. Rather, according to Jeremiah 9, 23-24, we can take pride in something other than wealth or status or popularity. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So what's different here is that both rich and poor alike we ought to take pride in who we are in Christ. That's different from the world that says you're who you are based on your popularity, what you own, how much rich you have, how, how much fame you have. The last thing we'll touch on is in verses 12 through 16. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brother. 
brothers and sisters. So James, in many ways, brings us back to what we spoke of earlier, uh, the fact that perseverance through trial is a Christian ideal. Um, but he gives us a little bit more of an impetus because he adds the whole crown of life thing. Um, which in many ways also should have come first. It's just, I feel like it's like if you were at like the carnival and you were thinking he's explaining like the jackpot. And he's saying, look, you hit the jackpot, you get this mini-sized Snickers bar. You get a hundred pack of bigger flavored juggies. And, uh, oh yeah, you also get free admission in the park, all inclusive for all eternity. Okay, oh, whoa, that's really awesome. You should have said that first, right? That's what I think of. That's not what happened. Um, but it, it is honestly even still hard uh, to persevere sometimes when we don't get to experience the reward and the benefits now. And that's kind of like, I like to think of like a time swap in many ways. Like, what if time ran backwards just for like a moment? Um, I think about like pregnancy. Um, not that you don't know it's worth it when you give birth, but what if like it was reversed just for a little bit? And you got to hold your kid. You knew that newborn in your hands before you went through. It would give you more power. It would give you more perseverance. It would, it would just give you more oomph because you know that it's worth it. Because you held it in your arms. It, I mean, I try to think of other things. It's not always the case. Um, I read about something about a snowman. I mean, think about it this way. Snowman is formed uh, by a bunch of laughing children very rapidly. And you know, they put the snowman together slowly melts away over time. So if you were to swap that, take time backwards on that, you have a snowman that very slowly and probably painfully start life forms over time. Only to be alone for a while until finally it is quickly and viciously ripped apart by laughing children. <laughs> and you're like, no matter how you take that, the snowman gets the short end. Right? But for us, that's not the case. We have something to look forward to. But unfortunately, we don't get to be in heaven first. We don't get to just be in there and be like, yeah, yeah, that's true. It is worth it, right? We have to believe and not doubt. We don't get the Costco sample. But we have to know that eternity with God is worth it. If we believe that and we don't doubt it, then we'll be able to persevere. Because when we don't see the reward now, it weakens us in many ways to our evil desires, which is what James is talking about here. You know, and he, he says, look, God is not tempting you. Toss that out. It's just, that's not a thing. It's your desire for something else other than the fruits of God. We don't see the rewards now, but you know, in wealth and status and the things of the world, in many ways, we get to experience that now. And so sometimes our desires get wavered and they focus on that. And that moral objective is wrong. And when that moral objective is wrong, it leads to wrong actions.
actions, which then leads to sin, which ultimately leads to death, to people who are spiritually dead. But when our moral objective is for God, our desire is to God, it is for that crown of life that he's promised, then born out of that will be actions that build us up, that strengthen us. We will be better people. We will be God's people. You know, we went a little bit over. We did pretty good. Um, in summary, we have learned, uh, I think, Chad's point here, namely that we're called to be different. We're called to consider our promises of joy because they build us up as better people. We have hope for the crown of life. We're called to endure life truth. Not waves. Because we know that we will grow strong through trial. We're called to take pride in our loneliness as servants of God, and we're called to ask for God's help, not self-help. And we're called to be faithful believers, not doubters. Summary, we are called. And we're called to be different. In a speech. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln said, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, and no other nation has ever grown this way. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom in virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. So like the Christians were called to be proud of who we are in Christ. Proud to face the wind, to take on the storm. And to the world, that's different. A world in wisdom. Please pray with me. Lord, I just pray that we would take to heart objectives to be different, to have different moral objectives, God. That we, when we struggle, when we're going through trials, we would, through you, see the bright side, God. That we'll be better for it in the end. That we won't be enticed by the world and its wealth and get caught up in the moment, the status, and having possessions and more, God. That we would focus our actions on you, that we would take pride in who we are in you and nothing else. God, I just thank you so much for inspiring Chad to, to see this as a needed sermon topic, God, and just helping me have the words to deliver it here, God. I just thank you so much for the people here and the willingness to be receptive to this message, God. And I just pray. You would be with us this day and 
this message would stay in our hearts and stay in our minds as we go. We love you. Amen.